today is the, the I'm going to touch upon those, but the idea that there is a kind of two-world system. And I hope you get the radical nature of this. But in a sense, if you get it, if you buy what I'm saying, I'm going to ruin your life. Um, and I think that if we get what the New Testament is saying, it'll ruin our lives. Because there is no accommodating common sense or comfort or success or simply the tastes that surround us or capitalism or, you know, what we would do, I'm afraid, in both a Catholic and a Protestant Christianity. I think those, those have both accommodated themselves in some fashion or another to a kind of middle class ethos of... You know, uh, David Bentley Hart has just come out with an article, uh, and his idea, here, let me quote Hart, he says, The New Testament emerges from a cosmos ruled by malign celestial principalities, conquered by Christ but powerful to the end, and torn between spirit and flesh. And, of course, the picture here is that this two-world system, you're going to encounter it throughout Scripture, but in Paul, he will pose it as spirit and flesh. In John, he will talk about it as a two-cosmos system, the cosmos of darkness and the cosmos of light. And so there are no comfortable medians in these latitudes, no areas of shade. Everything is cast in the harsh light of final judgment, and that judgment is absolute. In regard to all these uh, texts, the qualified, moderate, common-sense interpretation is always false. And yet, I think that's the way that we tend to break it down. Um, you know, the Max Weber's... Uh, the spirit of capitalism traces the history of the rise of a capitalistic notion of, a, of the rise of a middle-class sensibility to a Protestant and particular a Calvinistic Christianity. And I think that's probably right, that there is this um, idea of, you know, that every uh, thing that we do, whether we're a, you know, businessman or everything. Well, you just accumulate wealth on behalf of God instead of yourself. And so in some way, we've learned to do that across the board. Uh, Hart spent a couple of years. Hart has some sort of, he's been very sick, and he was in translating the New Testament. He said, and after this period then, he uh, went through a great deal of reflection, and he came back to the New Testament. He says, what surprised me, was the de degree to which the whole experience left me with a deep melancholy, almost Kierkegaardian sense that most of us who go by the name of Christians ought to give up the pretense of wanting to be Christian, at least. If by that word one means not simply one who is baptized, who adheres to a particular set of religious observances and beliefs, but more or less what Nietzsche meant when he said that there has been only one Christian in human history and that he died, had died on the cross. 
I think what Hart is coming to, and I think what we all need to come to, is this radical notion that's given to us in Scripture, uh, the radical departure. I mean, that's the you know part of the Protestant uh, Lutheran uh, split between the Gospels and the Epistles is in some way taming the radical revolutionary ethic that's there in the life of Christ, in the Sermon on the Mount. Surely we're not called, you know. And so in a, in a typical Protestant understanding, in imputed righteousness, that there is kind of an easy way of uh, accommodating these things. Hart says, one thing in, is remarkably short in the New Testament is common sense. I don't know if you all are familiar with the common sense uh, philosophy that actually of uh, common sense realism. Common sense realism that was the Restoration Movement and Alexander Campbell were very much taken with common sense realism. The Gospels, the Epistles, Acts, Revelation, all of them are relentless torrents of exorbitance and extremism. Commands to become as perfect as God in his heaven, and to live as insouciantly as lilies in their field. Condemnations of a roving eye as equivalent to adultery, and of evil thoughts toward one another as equivalent to murder. Injunction to sell one's, all one's possessions, and to give the proceeds to the poor, and demands that one hate one's parents for the kingdom's sake, and leave the dead to bury the dead. This extremism is not merely an occasional hyperbolic presence in the text. It is their entire cultural and spiritual atmosphere. Who is that? This is David Bentley Hart. Talking about? He is, he is picking, he's picking up the New Testament. He's reading it again. With the, he's translating it with the eyes that, uh, you know, a kind of fresh understanding. And maybe it's worth talking a little bit about Hart's own Eastern Orthodox perspective. I think that, that certainly I'm not Eastern Orthodox, but if I, you know, if you had to choose the departure that someone like Irenaeus will make, in which Irenaeus is perhaps, you know, he's at 180 AD, right? So he's depicting this the world in the same stark terms that in early, you know, by the time you come to the Constantinian shift is going to be hard to repeat. I don't think Protestantism is is successful, obviously, in escaping that Protestant or that Constantinian notion. And so in the early church, there was this sensibility of a two-world system. And I think that's what Hart is rediscovering, and that's what I'm trying to convince you of in talking about sin in terms of a deception, of a lie. Not simply of a deception that's put upon any of us as individuals, but a system that we can inhabit, a deception that has its own logic, its own desires, its own principles, its own powers, that constitutes one world. So if you get what I'm saying, I think it does allow us to return to this radical understanding that's there in the New Testament. Otherwise, I think our tendency is to always tame what we encounter and say, oh, surely this, you know, we're not really called to to take up our cross. We're not really called 
to this kind of poverty. We're not really called to abhor riches. We're not really called uh, to this, you know, counter-cultural, uh, you know, con- you know, resubjectivizing. You know, however you want to say it. That we, I think, there is this radical understanding that we're reborn, we're reconstituted as human beings in Christ. That's there in the New Testament, but unfortunately, I think in the tame versions of Christianity that we, uh, that we have today, they don't get it. And I would say that the, the, where they don't get it is precisely in the topic that we're looking at, and that is the idea of what is sin. So sin, if sin is like a partial problem, a moral problem or, you know, uh, simply that, it's missing the mark, and uh, then justification uh, can be, you know, uh, a kind of imputed righteousness. Uh, this is Hart, he says, therein lies the deep comfort provided by the magisterial Protestant fantasy that the Apostle Paul invade against something called works righteousness, in favor of a purely in extrinsic justification by grace, which, alas, he did not. And, of course, inasmuch, I think, as we've come to in the, you know, uh, a no, new understanding of Paul, what's the movement, the uh, new perspective on Paul, new perspective on, is actually then, I think, a realization that the Protestant notions of a kind of, uh, imputed righteousness, a kind of, uh, there is a departure from the radical demands of the ethic, but also of just the life that is there in the New Testament. Um, he says, I, I mean that most of us would find Christians truly cast in the New Testament mold fairly obnoxious, civically reprobate, ideologically unsound economically destructive, politically irresponsible, socially discreditable, discreditable, and really just a bit indecent. Uh, I don't think that what we're encountering in the New Testament is made to help us be successful according to the standards of this world. It's not to set us on a path of destructive desire. And that's one of the things Hart is mainly writing about is the idea that, oh, we're really called out of a system in which we're in the pursuit of wealth, whether it doesn't matter if it's a first century pursuit or a capitalistic pursuit, that's always our, the temptation is to fall back into systems of desire. So if you, if you buy this understanding of sin that I'm suggesting, I think this is the entry point into uh, an alternative reading of the New Testament. It's not Thomistic, it's not Anselmian, it's not even Protestant. Uh, And in this, uh, I think we have to begin uh, with a picture then of what is creation, what is creation's purpose, how could it be that there could be a world constituted over and against uh, creation. So if you've, uh, you know, the, one of the ideas that I'm 
I think we begin with in reading scripture is a Christocentric understanding. I don't think we can begin reading without that. So that as you read in the beginning in Genesis, I think you immediately have to lay that over the life of Christ in which John also then talks about in the beginning. With those two things laid side by side, Creation's purpose is then a a kind of temple construction. And what we mean by this, the purposes of creation are found in this is the place in which uh, man and God will fellowship. The purposes of the cosmos uh, are that God would walk in the garden in the cool of the day, certainly, but ultimately that two on the road to Emmaus would encounter God, and ultimately that the Holy Spirit then would indwell us. That is, I think the purposes of creation were always going to be fulfilled through Christ. In this understanding, prime reality, again thinking creation, but also creation as uh, understood through the New Testament, is understood as logos, as the word of God, you know, you could run this down any direction you want. That in a modern science happens to point in this direction today that, uh, you know, he literally, I think, not necessarily in some scientific way, because science, what we're discovering in high energy physics and cosmology, comes to that place where science itself begins to break down and lacks explanation. So the picture in... Colossians that he holds all things together or the idea there in Genesis that he spoke and it happened and of course the picture in John that he is recreating the world in and through Christ I think that gets at the radical nature of creation fall and then the need for a recreation part of part of understanding the whole role of the lie and the role of of, is to understand how the Word of God then functioned uh, in the original image of God. Um, so we've talked a little bit about what is the human image that would be found in a plurality of persons. They're created male and female. But that maleness and femaleness is inclusive of the understanding of God's image, which is God's original self-image right? Image means this is the way that God views himself. It's this reflexive image. So that part of being created in the image of God is to see ourselves then in and through the eyes of God. Uh, That we do not know who we are. We are not true image bearers apart from the realization that we're children of God. Um, the, The picture of creating them in the image then extends in Genesis to being placed in the garden and the fall then will also be a a fall that uh, uh, impacts creation. Uh, So what I'm getting at here, there's one world that's constituted by God uh, that has the, uh, you know, is grounded in the word of God And then the world that is constituted by man is simply a negation of that through a human word, through a human 
system of knowing through uh, a human ethic. So that's the picture, you know, with the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, whatever you think about the early chapters of Genesis, this will be the ground, this will be the basis of understanding sin throughout the rest of the Old and the New Testament. Uh, that when Jesus talks about sin or, you know, uh, and its origin, he's going to talk about the garden scene. When Paul talks about sin, he's also going to reference Genesis 3. So, uh, we, t- we did a bit, I think, last time with the knowledge of good and evil that the fall of man is an alternative epistemology. On Tuesday night, we did the whole idea of identity through difference. Um, this world you know, is the way that John is going to talk about it. The flesh is the way that Paul is going to talk about it. Many of the writers in the New Testament are going to refer to this world as the, you know, under the power of the prince of the power of this world, Satan, and and refer to it as his kingdom. Um, So God loves uh, one world and is going to redeem that world But there is, even in John, a picture of a world that's constituted by the Jews, the ruling powers, Herod, Caiaphas, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Roman government. In other words, there's no, there's no, that when we talk about a realm of darkness, it is then, you can point to these human institutions as the thing that's constituting it. And so too, I think when we go back and read Genesis, we begin to, that we can understand that the this alternative world is one that's constituted as a kind of anti-world, a kind of uh, anti-creation. Um, so, if the Word of God is prime reality, as we find it in Genesis and John and Colossians, the Word of man is going to be, be a counter-reality to that. We could, we could pause here and run that down as much as you wanted to, uh, but it functions at several levels. It functions, I think, at a deep psychoanalytic level that quite literally uh, in our enculturation and socialization into uh, human societies, that there is this sensibility of our humans uh, being... Uh, subjects then as Paul will describe it in Romans 7 according to not the word of God but according to the word of man which Paul is going to characterize as the the law of sin and death as as Hart puts it how stark the dualism really is in Paul's letters and elsewhere in the New Testament between flesh and spirit and of course that's what he's saying spirit is not just the material world or the physical body but for Paul, spirit is this dynamic that stands over and against the word of God. It's an alternative ontology, we could say, in that it's given over to death and nothingness. Are we allowed to ask questions? Yes, yes, certainly. So, but we can only come at the word of God through human institutions that are often constituted in the ways of the world. So I just don't see how we're supposed to escape that. Well, the the picture, I think, is that uh, in the revelation that we have in Christ, that there is a word that's been given to us from God 
this word then, if we read the Gospels rightly, we can understand how Christ then stands opposed to the principalities and powers, how he stands opposed to the kingdom of Satan, uh, how this is an exposure of the darkness through the light. The revelation then that we have in Christ is, in my understanding, the only means of dispelling the deception. Uh, the, the deception is such that we can constitute all things, not to say that everything that is a part of a deception is, is itself untrue, but to say that the truth then that we have is made to inhere in this lie. And so specifically the way in which the word of Christ comes to us is to give us an alternative uh, access, not that there are two, in other words, that's the common Thomistic understanding or the common understanding throughout an early Christianity up till um, modern times, and that is that there are these parallel courses that human institutions are adequate to get us to God. Human thought is adequate to get us to God, uh, that human realms then, in some way, uh, though they're marred in some way by sin, that we can, uh, if we can have proper insight and uh, be, you know, follow truth as we have it enough, that eventually that will lead us to the absolute truth. I'm afraid what's not being taken account of there is then the the understanding that no we're constituted as human subjects in a deception in a lie and so that's step one that christ is the in the special revelation that we have in christ in and through his death and resurrection his life death and resurrection and what is given to us in the community of the saved in the koinonia fellowships that are there in the early church are these communities in which the promise is given that, you know, where two or three are gathered together, that Christ is with you. So uh, I would say that these institutions are, first of all, are not, institution may be the wrong word, these communities, these people, these families, these, you know, Paul's going to use, the New Testament is going to use a lot of language to describe the way that the word of God reconstitutes it reconstitutes us and reconstitutes the culture of the church and maybe even the word reconstitutes I is that uh, it's not that Christ takes a culture and makes it new the picture rather is that the one world is undone and another world is given to us in and through these new communities but oftentimes the church just becomes another human institution even in a small level you could say well three people you know that's always the danger and i think that's why the new testament is written not to create these communities this is why paul is and the writers of the new testament they're so eager to preserve that fellowship in the spirit that koinonia that is there Uh, because it's not something that we can constitute as part of human institutions, uh, but it is something that's given there in the first century. uh, And uh, the point of the New Testament, then, is to preserve the body of Christ as it's posited in 
faith, the, the positive faith. Uh, it's not something that we can do through human effort. But, but the point is that uh, we can preserve it by adhering to the, the word of Christ. Um, so Christ is a direct confrontation or, or, you know, in Christ is the de- direct confrontation between the word of man and Christ is the word of God. And so part of the way in which Christ overcomes the world, I believe, is to expose it for what it is. That is, if sin is a deception, that explains the necessity of revelation. Otherwise, the idea of an analogientus or a parallel understanding of the New Testament, we could follow that. Uh Otherwise, the Western Church would have gotten this right. I just think that the Western Church, both Protestant and Catholic, have missed it, whereas in this sense, the departure that the Eastern Orthodox Church makes, uh, I think, is correct. So you're saying the whole Western Church has missed this? I'm saying that inasmuch as they have confused or confounded the word of man with the word of God, that they've made a departure that the New Testament warns us about. Not to say that as, in other words, again, where does the truth lie? We don't want to begin to put and say, oh, well, they all stopped being the church or they all missed this. But I think that part of the, the teaching of the New Testament is that we can begin to understand there are these false teachers and there is this false teaching and it will always be characterized by the same structures. It will always be characterized by those things we find in a Gnostic understanding, in the idea of a mystical you know, kind of uh, uh, ecstatic encounter with God, a secret understanding. Uh, so Gnosticism, to my mind, is the prototype and once we were, to, if we laid out then that false teaching that is being countered in the New Testament, I think that gives us the kernel of what we should always look for in the continual rise or the continual departure from the deposit of faith that's been given to us in, in uh, Christ. So who are you including in this they? They have missed it, and you're not including yourself in that? I think that we all occasionally miss it. We all are given over to this. I can feel it in myself. Um, And so it's not that uh, I think that that's part of the Christian life, is that uh, it is a a life. It is an unfolding journey. Sure. I just think we ought to be a little bit careful in saying the Western church has missed us. I think the Western church has often not missed it, too. Like, we can't just throw the whole church and say, well... We're the true Christians, and they like we're also living a comfy middle class life right here, using coal powered electricity. So I don't think it's fair. And that's that's Hart's point: is who can do this thing? He said, "I certainly can't." He said, "I like meat and potatoes and beer and and so you know the the uh, the the point is not oh where are the authentic Christians to be found or where has the church failed. Uh, that's not the point so much, but but the idea is let's get before us 
uh, the picture of what we are called to in Christ. And so we will all uh, continually be striving, I think, as Paul says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's not to, uh, yeah, to put it on somebody else, it may be a mistaken understanding. But I think we should be able to identify historically certain teachings or certain understandings that probably get it right and those that get it wrong. What tends to happen in uh, uh, an understanding of the tradition is to lump it all together like all these people agreed. No, they didn't all agree uh, that there's one way that's better than another way. Um, did Aunt was you know if you ask me well what about that Anselm? I like Anselm as a person. You know I li- I think he had a depth of friendship and love, and so we can even read Anselm of Canterbury and benefit from it. But I also think that Anselm was profoundly mistaken, or and and maybe even that you know what has happened is that people have taken up the teaching of somebody like Anselm, and have taken it even further than he himself would have taken it. His monologion and proslogion uh, are a method that he's positing that have almost become a singular method that has been presumed. His you know why a god man is an explanation, a kind of metaphorical explanation of the meaning of the atonement uh, that I don't know that Anselm himself would have been happy that everybody would have said, oh yeah, that's the one. He was just giving us an illustration, I think, that was not meant to be taken as an exhaustive explanation. Uh, There's another question over there. Yes, Dalton. Are you? I feel like you're just walking through First John, five through ten. Oh, run it down for us. Why so? Uh, I'm just gonna read it. This is the message we have heard from him, announced uh, and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is the light, we have fellowship with Him, or with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. That sounds, yeah, that sounds pretty stark and a pretty clear delineation. Uh, I think that's that it's uh, John is it's especially simply true. I think it's there though throughout the New Testament. John and it's in John that Jesus will talk. He, he accuses the Pharisees. He says, "Well, you're of your father the devil, and your native tongue is lying because the, the devil was a liar and a deceiver from the beginning." I think Jesus is not simply saying that about the Pharisees, I think in the same spirit he's saying that like John would say it or Paul is going to say it, that there is two kinds of language ultimately 
The Pharisees are the best of people. They're ethical, they're religious, they're the leading lights of the day, they're moral, you know. And what would these best of people do when they encounter Jesus? Or to state it differently, what would the first Adam do when he meets the second Adam? Well, Jesus says, you're going to kill me. Uh, That you, you know, and they say, well, you, you know. So, there is this, I think the encounter between Christ and the Pharisees is as good as it gets. Not because the Pharisees are peculiarly bad, but precisely the opposite. They're unusually good in relative terms. Um, Isaiah uh, pictures this in terms of a covenant with death. Can somebody read Isaiah 28? 15 to 16 and it's actually there I'm going to talk until somebody reads it it's actually there both in Isaiah 28 and in Isaiah 8 that the entry into idol worship which if you've ever been uh, in Japan um, you know where does the reli- what does the religion revolve around it revolves around the graveyard so that oh bone you go out to the graveyard the ancestors are there and in some way, the ancestors are the gods. You got it, Christian? Mm-hmm. What was it again, 28? 28, 15 to 16. 16. <clears throat> because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol, we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So I believe there is that stark contrast that's predicted in Isaiah that we find in the New Testament between what Jesus is going to call the walking dead, the living dead, And what Isaiah calls those who have entered into a covenant with death. And all he's describing there, I think, is probably something on the uh, uh, order of ancestor worship uh, that Isaiah 8 pictures them. They go out out into the graveyard. They're offering up incense to the dead. And they say, you know, stay away from us, God, because what we have is more holy uh, than you. So... Again, it is a deception. You've made an agreement with the grave. It's a deception. It's a lie. You imagine when the overwhelming scourge of death sweeps by, that in some way you're the ones that will be left untouched. I think that whatever that religion is, it characterizes idolatrous religion or pagan religion in that it is a covenant with death but more than that let's not make religion the primary thing here religion is itself simply a manifestation of what we do in in the human heart that in some way we posit as adam and eve did as satan does a kind of innate immortality a kind of you know even maybe that's not the way to describe it but the idea that we can endure death or uh, that uh, we survive death, and death is an entry point. Then, but the passage in Isaiah then is a messianic passage. Read the. the oh, are you closed it up? No, I can pull it up. 
the the thing that undoes this covenant is then the tested cornerstone. Read that one again. A costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. And uh, go on and read a little bit there. Uh, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with yeah. death will be canceled, and your pact with Sheol will not stand. So the lie will be undone. The covenant with death will be exposed for what it is. You will not be, another reading there, you will not be put to shame. You will not be disturbed or you will not be undone. That is, if entering into the covenant of death, think here in Genesis 3-4, you won't die. Well, if you believe the lie and you enter into it, you die. Believing the lie puts you to shame. Believing the lie exposes you to the grave. Undoing the lie, undoing the covenant, then, and of course the way the covenant, the way the tested stone is going to undo death, Christ is going to defeat death. Death is the last enemy, and Christ then defeats the power of death. The way that Satan is pictured in the New Testament as exercising his power over us is in and through the fear of death in Hebrews. Uh, That we are enslaved then to uh, the fear of death. Now, I don't know that we go around trembling at the thought of dying, but we certainly are controlled then by a kind of angst or fear uh, that maybe we can't even articulate. But isn't that ultimately the thing? You know, when Jesus says, he who would save his life shall lose it, what is our system of salvation aimed at doing? Well, it's, it's aimed at doing precisely the thing that it fails at. You would save your life, and in the process, you lose it. And, of course, that's the ironic counter to the lie of Satan that says you can believe the lie and live. And then the rest of the statement from Christ is, he who would lose his life for my sake and the gospel shall find it. So I believe that that central teaching of the New Testament that's repeated in all four gospels is directly addressing the human predicament, human systems of... And I, I, don't, I never mean to give human religion an, an essence, but human religion is then a kind of manifestation of this entry into the problem. Yes. So I have like secular humanist friends who are big on let's not be let's not fall into death denial, but let's become aware of death and like bring that to a conscious level and that can enrich our lives because you know it's like putting a time limit on things. Mm-hmm. There's like a deeper appreciation for what's here now. So how is that death acceptance different from what you're saying? Yeah, I think you could describe all sorts of, all forms of death acceptance. You know, a good samurai is one who would willingly lay down his life for his master. But in laying down his life for his master and dying, in some way he establishes his identity forever. So maybe that's not, we're not up to the secular humanist yet. 
if you think again of Hegel, Hegel is very much, he's the whole idea that as we recognize that fear is ultimately fear of death, and by the way, Freud is going to really be Hegelian in the development of his whole notion of the death drive, but what Hegel is saying is something on the order of a secular humanist, that just, you know, as Heidegger, who I think is very Hegelian, is going to say, as we're held out into death and nothingness, we come to true authenticity. And so they're, they're saying this, I think, as on the basis of a truth that has come directly to them, to Hegel and Heidegger, through Christianity. But it's a half-truth. In other words, it's not the full truth, because what they're doing is, again, ironically, the same thing that a you know, in a pagan religion, they're making death the answer. But in this case, they're making it a kind of negative answer. They're saying, oh, here is, you know, in a Heideggerian understanding, death is in some way the absolute. And then through encountering the absolute, uh, we can come to an authentic humanity or Mm -hmm. authentic being. So, it's, it's a more complicated procedure, and in the end, it's more honest. In other words, I would rather, I think Heidegger is more interesting than a Buddhist. But in the end, I think Heidegger makes the same mistake as a Buddhist in his whole idea about the inauthentic person, you know, being someone who is caught up in death denial, and then confessing or facing death or being held out into death and nothingness, he has just done what the good Buddhist has done. And this comes out especially in Heidegger's work on metaphysics when he talks about nothingness as a kind of absolute. And so what Christ is doing in his defeat of death, he's exposing the lie that death and nothingness constitute an absolute category. Uh, First of all, you have to acknowledge the reality of death. It is a reality. But then the problem is that in religion, that reality is in some way made an absolute that's in competition with God himself. That's the lie of Satan. And so the, the language of death denial, you know, I use that language, death acceptance, it's a little bit inadequate because I think it fails to account for a more sophisticated understanding that's there in, in post-modernity. And, you know, this is, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, this is even Derrida. He has a quite a sophisticated understanding of the role of death and the, the role it can play. What, he, what I think we cannot do, apart from a Christian understanding, is then not simply to absolutize death, but to, in some, in other words, this is Zizek, he will make death per se the absolute, and that's all he sees as Christ is doing, that the death of Christ points us to, and that's just a, an atheistic reading of the New Testament. 
So maybe I need to drop the language, but I still I don't I don't have any better way of talking about it other than death acceptance. Death. Well, it's like a step. Like death acceptance would be a step in the process. Right. Right. Um, It's you know, and and again, to even articulate it, this is this is where Freud is a little better than anybody else, because Freud is going the way he's going to say it is that. He's going to call this thing death drive, but he's going to say it doesn't really involve any conscious, at any conscious level, the understanding of literal death. But rather he's going to describe it as a dynamic between the superego and the ego, that it's a constitution of fear, mm-hmm. that of being undone. And this is why I think the language of shame probably gets at this better than anything else. Freud didn't uh, use that language, but I think that's really what he's describing. The fear of being undone, the fear of the law, if you want to put it in Paul's terms, the law in some way being a punishing law uh, over and against which we're, you know, suffer a kind of uh, annihilation. But even, again, there. It's the feeling of shame. It's the feeling of fear. It's Mm -hmm. the angst Mm -hmm. that I think is really being described in death denial. So the language, even to articulate it, we're probably going beyond what most of us, or, you know, that fear that we live with or that thing, you know, think in terms of desire. Because desire arises in immediate conjunction with this fear. What do you want? What do you desire? Well, ultimately, what you desire is to be rid of the angst, to get rid of the the, the feeling of absence or loss. Mm-hmm. You would fill yourself with something. You would establish yourself. Establish yourself over and against what? Well, I think that's the beautiful picture there of the Tower of Babel. I, surely that's not the way to describe that, but... <laughs> that that the tower then is this kind of imperturbable construct that they will make a name for themselves. In a good Freudian sense, that's all the ego is. The ego is just this object, this construct that we would establish ourselves, but the self that we would establish is not who we really are. In other words, the thing that causes us to fear, that dynamic between the superego and the ego, or the dynamic between the law, as Paul will describe it, and the I, is that a true understanding? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, he undoes that dynamic. So if you live in that dynamic, uh, maybe a Heideggerian, uh, Hegelian, uh, Peter Rawlins notion of tearing with the negative is as good as you get. But I mean... Oh yeah, I'll stop there if you've got any questions. Yes? So is there a felt reality that replaces shame? Or do you just have to be like, ah, oh, it's still there, but it's, it's a deception, so I'm just going to move past it. No, I think, I think that once you acknowledge shame, and I think that's what we need to do in our in in an, uh, the body of Christ in the koinonia, 
that our tendency will to come be to come together and be imagine that I'm okay, you're okay, or you know I I know you guys are kind of screwed up, but I'm actually you know I'll, I'll, I've actually got it all together. We need to get beyond that and recognize no, we're all subject to sin, death, shame. That's the human condition that we all come into this broken. I don't mean we live in the brokenness. But we have to acknowledge the brokenness. So where did the brokenness come from? Well, it comes from alienation. It comes from, uh, you know, uh, being in some way isolated, made separate. Where does the uh, resolution come? What is shame? That's why shame is such a good word here. Because shame is always shame and it's always a corporate thing. Mm Mm-hmm. We're always, you know, we when you're put to shame, you want to get out of the, the group because they're precisely the ones that are looking at you. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that our view of God is such sometimes that, in other words, if we still are depicting God as this big other punishing, you know, uh, super ego type figure, that's an aggravation to our shame. And that's why I think Christ, uh, Christianity that you often get in evangelicalism or in uh, and again i i think that we because we do not we're not willing to open up to the degree that we recognize health and wholeness and wealth as it's depicted in the culture is not something that we're going to attain through christ what's given to us in christ is something very different it's this living together it's life together that the cure to my shame is not in some way in other words my cure if i had to come up with a cure it would be pride i would just be invulnerable and i would make my i would establish myself and i would say i don't need nobody and uh maybe if i could get a bunch of money together you know if you're poor downtrodden sick it's obvious you need people. And as Christians, I think that's part of the temptation. I think we need to refuse wealth precisely for that reason, that what people would do with wealth is that they would make themselves invulnerable. Uh, and so pride is the human cure for shame, which is no cure at all, because pride comes before shame in the wisdom literature. So the, the reality is that in being loved and accepted as who I really am in a, a fellowship, in a koinonia, without the facade of, you know, that we usually bring, there then is the resolution to the alienation uh, that is shame-inducing. If you're loved, you're healthy. I mean, uh, that's... we. And if you're not loved, if you do not experience love, even if you seem to be the most invulnerable, independent, capable person in the world, I would say that that may be just the sign that you're a narcissistic evil. Uh, In other words, the degree that we make ourselves invulnerable, we make ourselves incapable of love. So um, why do we need Jesus then? Because we could all just read a bunch of Brene Brown books about courage and compassion and vulnerability and shame and come together and love one another. 
seems to be a pretty good solution. My understanding is that what we ultimately face is uh, not just a psychological leap that we can make, but we really do need a, uh, in the fellowship of the Spirit, we really are drawn together in a unity that we can refer to as a body. So I, I think that the, and I don't mean to any way, uh, I don't know whether she's a Christian or not, but just the recognition, the profound recognition in secular sociology and psychology, I don't want to, I don't want to reject it whole, because I think they're doing something that we often miss in theology. There is this profound recognition of the role of shame and the reaction to that in, you know, that's sort of the, I think that's just the picture of the flight of the fear of death. If you meet somebody who is completely invulnerable, think of my, you know, Shel Silverstein's circle. The circle that's complete is completely enclosed in itself. Uh, that, in fact, is an incapacity then to be there for the other, which in that shame, you know, shame, you, you have a kind of incapacity of actually being present. If you think this of this in terms of Derrida's notion of presence, we're always seeking presence. I think he gets it right. Uh, but where we would seek presence is then in language, in our self-presence in our head, you know, I think, therefore I am, I'm in here somewhere, you know. But the way in which we can come to not a Derridian presence or not that uh, notion of a kind of ecstatic fusion, but where we can come to true presence is that we're there for one another, that we can love one another, and in that love then experience the bond of unity in the Spirit of Christ. The, the Holy Spirit that constitutes the body.